All right. Whenever I am asked to speak on a Saturday morning, to tell you the truth, my mind goes back to uh, Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey, way back in 1990. I was attending an academic meeting there. It was for guys who taught preaching, that's called homiletics, across the country. Uh, they uh, you know, uh, uh, taught in Bible colleges and seminaries and such like. And so we were all gathered there at 10 o'clock in the morning. It was, it was in the Miller Chapel. And uh, here we were, a bunch of academicians, you know, gathered to hear the preacher. The preacher just happened to be that morning, Dr. Fred Craddock. And he's just a little guy, five foot nothing or so. He looked out at the crowd, this rather austere crowd, and he said, normally I don't preach on Saturday mornings. As a general rule, he said, I watch cartoons. And then he said, but looking at this crowd, maybe there's not much difference. <laughs> but you all look real good to me today, regardless of maybe the uh, sleep or lack thereof that you had. And so I'm glad to share with you again this morning. Well, we're talking about how to live missionally in the parables of Jesus, how the God of the Bible has this mission. And Gardner Taylor said it this way, the great African-American preacher from the Concord Baptist Church in New York City, that the story of the Bible is about a God who's out to get back what rightfully belongs to him. You rightfully belong to him. I belong to him. And he's trying to get us back. That's the mission. That's the mission. And Jesus kind of, you know, veils it in these things we call parables. These upside-down stories. Now, last night, we tried to kind of define that parabole, that word parable, as to what it means. It's some kind of a true-to-life comparison that makes you dumbfounded, but open to the dynamic reign of God in your life. Again, you can't improve on C.H. Dodd's definition that we mentioned last night, that a parable is a metaphor or simile, usually drawn from everyday or common life, arresting the hearer in its vividness or strangeness, but then this the subject of which, as to its precise application, leaves the mind in sufficient doubt to tease it into active thought. So last night we talked about a definition. Today, to kind of get us running, I want to talk to you about the functions of a parable. How did the parables of Jesus, since he's telling us in those parables how to live missionally, how did those parables function? Well, guys, they, they functioned in several ways. One of my teachers at Denver Seminary, my doctoral program, was a guy named Warren Wearsby. He lived in Lincoln, Nebraska. He had a personal volume library, about 15,000 volumes. He wrote 100 books. I don't think he knew there was a football team in town. But anyway, Warren Wearsby, the famous voice of Back to the Bible broadcast for many, many years, he said parables function in three ways. First, it's like a picture. Parables are a picture. A man went forth to sow. We said last night. And in your mind, what do you see? In your mind's eye, you see somebody casting seed. So parables function like a picture. But then if you look at the picture long enough, it starts looking back at you. So he says, secondly, parables function like a mirror. A mirror. It's like, you know, you stare at it long enough and it stares back at you. You know, the old statement is, when you're young, you make faces at the mirror. When you're old, the mirror gets back at you. Yeah, that's really true as an old geezer right now, I can say that. So it functions as a picture, functions as a mirror. Thirdly, he says it functions as a window, as a window. Because a window does what? It lets light in and it lets you see out. So here's what you do. You look out that window and you go, oh, that's how God looks at the world. Jeepers, I would never have looked at the world that way. No, no way. If my son brought financial ruin to my house when he came home, I'd beat the tar out of that boy. 
But the father we read about in the parable later today threw a party for him. That's how God looks at the world. He throws parties for prodigals. That's really weird. So it's a picture. It's a window. It's also a, it's also a, a, a window and a mirror. I meant it's a mirror and then window. But fourthly, I think it's this. And this would be adding to Warren Wearsby's list a little bit. I think it functions like the punchline of a good joke. What makes humor funny? It's the element of surprise. If you look up in the dictionary, Webster's definition of a joke, it, this is the definition. A sudden perception of an incongruity. That's not very funny. But it is what it is. It's a sudden perception. Oh, I didn't see that coming. The turn was what made it funny. Try this on for size. So here is this guy. He's at his morning breakfast nook at the table. He's sipping on his coffee and he's reading the morning newspaper. His wife comes down from the bedroom, hair in curlers, big bathrobe, fuzzy slippers. And she says, guess what? He doesn't even put the paper down. What? She says, I had a dream last night. He says, you did? What'd you dream? She says, well, I dreamt that somebody very special to me presented me with a pearl necklace. Well, that got his attention. So he put paper part way down. He says, oh, you did, did you? She said, yeah. What do you make of that? He put the paper all the way on the table and he smiled at her. He winked and he said, just you wait till tonight. Sure enough, that night when he came home, he was bearing gifts. And he gave it to her, and she opened it, and it was a book on how to interpret dreams. <laughs> now, that's not how that's supposed to end. There's supposed to be a necklace in that box, right? But it was the turn. It was the, and parables usually start out, as we mentioned last night, true-to-life comparisons. But at some point, they take an odd turn, and you go, well, I guess it could happen, but that's weird. It goes to fictional analogy. And it is in the fictional analogy where the love of God breaks through. It also functions as, fifthly, an ellipsis. An ellipsis, the breaking off of thought. Dot, dot, dot. You know? If I say, Jesus loves... Yeah, you want to finish it, don't you? Me, this, I... Know. Yeah, sure. That's a breaking off of thought. And, and parables just kind of end. They, they just end, sometimes without much of a specific conclusion and ending, because Jesus wants you to supply the ending. So maybe it's like an ellipsis. They'll function that way, and they'll function in some other ways as well. In fact, I'm indebted to William Herzog for this insight. He said parables function as a subversion. He's trying to flip something upside down, socially, ethnically, religiously, uh, economically, Jesus is trying to right the ship because ever since Genesis 3, it's been upside down. We call it the fall. So these parables are to flip things. These parables are to subvert. Now here's how it happens, and it's so cool. Jesus does this by using common stock images. In other words, he communicated with people that he was talking to, of course. He, he could put the cookies on the low shelf. He, he, he knew how, what was in the reservoir of their brains from which they would draw. If I just said, for instance, oh, I'm just, let's just pick out some mascots like of this state. So if I said, and I would certainly say at this crowd, the cowboys. Okay? Yeah, the cowboys. Oh, I suppose we have to go down south and say the Sooners. Okay, I know, I understand, I understand. 
Ah, the hurricanes. Ah, the thunder. What what, what, what are we... They're tied for first place, you know. Three-way tie. Um, Those are mascots. You could interpret those, but if I was in the state of New York this morning and I said the Sooners or the Cowboys, I don't know that they would... See, Jesus' people had these common stock images about which his parables concerned. Now, I will just tell you this. My father, who just passed away at age 95, not very long ago, dad was a graduate of the Benson High School in Benson, Omaha, Nebraska. That's a suburb of Omaha. Do you know what the mascot for the Benson High School was when my dad graduated and is to this very day? You ready for this? Buckle up. Here it is. The Benson Bunnies. Now, that's just wrong. You know, I mean, that's just... Who in the world? Kill them bunnies as they take the field. You know, just, it loses a little, don't you think? So, so anyway, in fact, hey, not very far away, Chickasha, the home of the fighting chicks. Yeah? So what we got to do is get a game. We got to get a game between the chicks and the bunnies. Now that would be a real game, don't you think? So, so, so what about that? Um, I actually was speaking at a Christ in Youth conference one time in Indiana, and I had mentioned about my dad's mascot in his high school being the Benson Bunnies. And this guy yells at me across campus the next day, Hey, are you the old dude who preached last night? I said, Yeah, that would be me. He said, um, he said I got one for you. My, I'm from an Indiana high school, and our mascot is the home of the fighting Quakers. <laughs> you do realize Quakers are pacifists. But anyway, the home of the fighting Quakers. So, so what did Jesus do? He talked about kings and landowners and, uh, you know, uh, fathers. And in Jesus' world, those guys all played the God role in the stories. So, So the point is that he took these common stock images. Everybody could connect. But then he subverts. He flips them. And he has to say, like in our story today, a priest passed by. A Levite passed by. Everybody knew where this was going. Oh, he's going to say, an Israelite passed by. No, an Israelite stopped and helped. He didn't say that. He said, but a Samaritan. And everybody went, excuse me, patooey, patooey. A Samaritan. He took common stock images and he made uncommon connections with them. So that's how this works. That's how, and if you get the uncommon connection, you might just find out the mission of God in your life. So today we come to this very, very familiar one, if you will. And I'm calling this one just helping the people. Last night, sowing the seed. This morning, helping the people. Why do we want to help the people? How could that possibly be a missional strategy? Well, because like the names you've written on these pieces of paper to get them on your heart and get them in your mind, it allows you to be other-focused friend of mine that lives in Colorado by the name of Rick Rousseau, he's done a whole thing on this thing about the externally focused church. Get your mind off yourself and be concerned about somebody else in the community. And that's kind of what this is about. So why do we help people? So they'll come to our church. No. No, we help people because people need help. They might come to your church. And you might get the attention of the news media. And they might say, did you see about that college group from Sunnybrook Christian Church? They're out in the community picking up trash today. Oh, it might get you a little press, but that's not why we do it, right? We do it because of who we are. Didn't we just sing something about that? Finding our identity in Him. And we do it because they need it. 
You help because they need it. And that's what we're going to find in this incredible story. It's, it's probably the second most popular story of Jesus. We usually call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. But you've got to understand, in Jesus' world, the only Good Samaritan was a Dead Samaritan. So, so we're in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. I need to tell you this, that in chapters 9 through 19 of the Gospel of Luke, we call it the travel narrative. The travel narrative. Because in this section of Scripture, Jesus is always going up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, because he can accomplish our redemption. So it pictures him always going up. And in this section, there are 18 parables. So Jesus loaded his gun with these stories as he moves upstream. So let's look at it. Chapter 10. In, in, what's interesting is, in the previous chapter, he knocked on the door of a Samaritan village. Could I spend the night? And they hung out the sign, no vacancy. No Jews welcome here. And in the next chapter... He lets a Samaritan be the hero of the story. What is wrong with this Jesus? What is he doing? Chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Now, I don't know about you. I don't speed read the Bible. I, I, I just try to turn over every rock. I try to rattle every door. Let's go slow. You good? Chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, ah, the word of biblical surprise. Look at this. Look at this. A lawyer. Anybody training to go into law? I will refuse to tell all my lawyer jokes. But anyway, uh, law. This is probably an expert in Jewish law, maybe an expert in Roman law. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Oh, that's a problem. Let me ask you. If Jesus is tested, do you think he'll get an A? <laughs> See, I drew an arrow in my Bible from verse 25 down to verse 29. Because this guy's got two problems. He's putting Jesus to the test and he's trying to justify himself. Putting Jesus to the test and justify himself. I will guarantee this. If you try to put Jesus to the test and justify yourself, you'll leave church unchanged every week. Every week. He put Jesus to the test. Here's what he said. Teacher, that was the major vocative, that was the major direct address of people that talked to Jesus. Rabbi, if you've watched The Chosen, that's often what they call him, Rabbi. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, there's a problem with that question. Sometimes you can tell an awful lot by a student by what questions they ask. I like this one years ago, 2 o'clock in the morning, phone rings. Did you want this typed? Okay, anyway, so you got the idea? That tells me a lot about that student and how soon this assignment's being cranked out. So... He says to him this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see the problem with the question? Do to inherit. Do to inherit. You usually don't do anything to inherit, do you? I was the, trust of my dad, my, the trustee of my dad's trust when he died. So I had to disperse the money to Ozark Christian College and to the Christian Evangelistic Mission in Iowa and to a church up in Iowa. I had to disperse it. Because these were already decisions. I didn't do anything. Dad just died. You don't do anything to inherit unless you kill your rich Uncle Harry who's going to leave you a fortune. No, you, to inherit something, that's what somebody else does. Is this guy, is his question indicative that he is uh, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps? Is he trying to just say, I've been a pretty good boy? Is he just going to get up to heaven someday and go... Here I am. Where do I sit? What must I do to inherit? He's, he's got it wrong already, doesn't he? 
And Jesus said to him, this fascinates me, what is written in the law? I wonder if Jesus didn't know. How do you read it? Do you know how many questions Jesus asked? He's the sovereign, omniscient son of God. 304. Boy, for a guy who knew everything, he was asking lots of questions. He was doing it at age 12. We referred to that passage last night. What is written? And then he says, how do you read it? Do you know Jesus is interested in how you read his word? How do you read it? What do you think about it? Have you ever asked a question that you already knew the answer to? Uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, I think you know. And he says, well, it's this. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God. Where are we? Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with heart, soul, and strength. You see, in the Hebrew world, the heart meant your brain as well. But by the time of the great Roman world with Jesus, they added the word mind because they had separated the cognitive factor from the emotional factor. So here it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. As college students, do you love God with your mind? John R. W. Stott years ago wrote a book called Your Mind Matters. You love him with your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Oh, we had to add that little part, didn't we? So we're putting Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19, the code of holiness, love God, love neighbor, that's kind of it. So he nails it, and Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this. Not think about it, not march about it, not put it on a sign. Do this and you will live. Love, ahav in Hebrew and agape in Greek. Love is something one does. That's being on mission with Jesus. Is loving other people. Do this and you will live. And then comes the crux of the matter. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. That never ends well. Said, well, I want to know is how big you have to draw your circle. Who is my neighbor? And then begins the parable. Who is my neighbor? Now Jesus, the master teacher, he knows how this goes. Because if that had been me, and the lawyer had been asking me, who is my neighbor? This would be Mark Scott's answer. Well, the Hebrew word for neighbor is, and the 14 Chaldean cognates are, and you better take notes, buddy boy, because we're having a test Friday. And everybody would have gone to sleep. But the master teacher draws him in and says, well, <laughs> a certain man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and as he did, he fell among thieves. They robbed him, stripped him, and left him. Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable, and we've never forgotten it. And so we'll just kind of work through this. Look, look at what he says here. Verse 30, it says, this man went from going down. By the way, the word down is like a very important word. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, so, so you could ask Rachel about this. About that road, it's called the Bloody Way. It descends 17 uh, you know, and a half miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, and you descend 3,700 feet. That would be like going from the Colorado State Line, which is 4,000 feet in sea, above sea level, to get to Joplin, Missouri, across the state of Kansas. That's 963 feet above sea level. That's the same amount of distance, but that's in 440 miles as opposed to 17 and a half. 
That's why Kansas is the largest handicap ramp in the world. Anyway, that's just for free. But here, what you, this is quite a descent. So a man going to Jerusalem, Jericho, he fell among thieves. Well, yeah, because if you look at this place, you'll see why. I remember our very first trip to Israel way back in the year 2000, and our driver was, was, was one of those new tour buses where the driver sat in front of the front wheels. Are you with me? He sat in front of the front wheels in the vehicle. And so he's kind of out, and we kind of go over a precipice, you know, and my wife is digging her fingernails into my thigh, which she does when we take off in an airplane as well. That means that she's afraid. So she's, and so we're going out, and we're looking at the bloody way as it goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and there was St. George's Cathedral in the mountains back there, and we're looking at this. And Amon, our Israeli guide, says, oh, you don't have to worry. Our bus driver got his license last week. So anyway, um, <laughs> we're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we're watching it. He fell among robbers. You can see where they could hide. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going, which way? My ESV says, down. Down. That's important. The road, when he saw him, isn't a priest a religious person? And he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Ah, Levites. There you go. That's the education. See, if you got the prophets here, and God is here giving the... And over here is the education, and over here is the royalty with the kings. The prophets were to give guidance to both of those people. By the way, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia is set up in that very way, that, that ancient city, that old city in our country. Uh, the Bruton Parish Church sits right in the middle of the, of the uh, colonial Williamsburg. And the reason is because they were trying to say that the church gives guidance to this and this and this, but the church is not education, the church is not government. That's a whole other story. Uh, but anyway, this Levite, they basically did two things. They taught Israel and they slit the throats of animals all day long. Drained out the blood, offered the sacrifice. When he came to the place and saw him, huh, he passed by. Isn't a Levite religious? Now comes the turn. But a, and like I told you earlier, everybody thought Jesus would say, an Israelite, just a common layman in the church, just a regular old guy, he stopped and helped. No, he didn't. But a Samaritan, and somebody at that point must have said, Ethel, get the kids. We're out of here. Good grief, Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, I love this word. In Greek, it's the word splachnizomai. Sounds like you're throwing up your socks, doesn't it? It's, it, it, it's, it, it's the visceral level. It means your gut. It means he's, he has compassion. He's touched in his gut. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Of course, the alcohol content in the wine would do what to the wound? It would dry it up. It would help. Okay. So he did that. And then he set him on his own animal, putting him in his Uber, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took you two out two denarii. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you, what do you do for your part-time job? I have a grandson that calls it chick de flay. Do you work at chick de flay? Christian chicken? Chick de flay. Well, how much would you earn in two days? I don't know. Maybe eight hours one day, eight hours. You could earn two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now comes Jesus uses this as an interrogative parable. Look at this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, oh, is that Samaritan guy? No, he didn't say that because he couldn't bring himself to say it. 
he didn't want the word Samaritan coming out of his lips. So he said, the one, the one, the one, the one that showed mercy, he just chose a salvific term. Mercy goes back to the Old Testament word chesed. It's God's loyal love, his covenantal love. It's a salvation term. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the one who showed mercy to him, and Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Okay, so here's the thing. If we're going to be missional people and pay attention to the parables of Jesus to get there, what does this say about helping people? I think one thing it says is, if you're serious about helping people, you might have to help them when they've been careless. Do you like doing that? I don't. I've been guilty of saying this in my life. Okay, you made your own mess, now just sit in it. Why? The Bible doesn't say that it was nighttime, but I think it might have been nighttime. The Bible doesn't say that he was by himself, but there's nobody else mentioned. A man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and as he did, he fell among thieves. You're traveling on a highway that's called the Bloody Way, and you're by yourself? You got rocks for brains? You've been careless. What are you doing? Dr. Fred Craddock would say, I'll tell you how to solve this abortion problem. Let those girls have those babies on the street. That'll solve it. Oh, you think so? You really think so? Do we have to have compassion on people who have been careless? There's a preacher in our area. Been there a long time. Some of you might know his kids or grandkids, but his name, just lost his wife a while back. Uh, he's got one of those Velcro minds, just everything sticks. His name is Boyce Moton. He used to preach in Carthage, Missouri. More recent years, he preached in Carl Junction, Missouri by Joplin. Anyway, he was driving to church one day, family in the car, kids in the back. They passed by a guy that was uh, broken down alongside the road. He was kind of waving at them like for help. And it was getting late. It was Sunday morning. They were running late for church, so they just kind of blasted on by. <laughs> and from the back seat, came this remark. Don't you think we ought to stop and help him, Dad? Don't you hate it when little kids kind of... <laughs> so anyway, they're going... Well, boy, I know we should stop, but I'm late for church and I am the preacher and I think I need to get there. And a few minutes later from the back seat came, oh, well, Dad, maybe a non-Christian family will stop and help him. <laughs> you know, why don't you just turn it while you got it in there? <laughs> Do you have to help people who have been careless? We have things in our town, I suppose you got them in Stillwater, watered gardens that help homeless people. We've had a homeless guy hanging around our church, we've been trying to help him, named Ernest. Ernest's got a lot of problems. And so some of his problems is just he's been, he's been careless. We had a guy in our church in Denver named Brian. One day, he stayed about five different times at our house. We let him wash his clothes and take a bath. Boy, did he need that. And, uh, you know, finally my wife said, Brian, what's your last name? Why do you want to know? Because I'm tired of calling you Brian the homeless man. That's why, my wife said. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's hard to help people. Sometimes it's a shtick. They know what they're doing. Do you have to help people who have been careless? I don't know. I think I go on. And see, you know what else is, do we have to help people when religious people have not helped them? Ooh, that's plowing pretty close to the corn, isn't it? Because I'm a religious person. 
I'm your worst nightmare. I train religious leaders. That's terrible, right? So, so I could see building an argument. Well, I mean, the priests pass by, the Levite pass by. There are spiritual gurus. I mean, maybe it'd be like Jim and Paul and Morgan and these guys and other people you know at Sunnybrook who I pray for every Monday, whether they know that or not. So what, what, what the priest, a Levite, passed by on the other side? I mean, maybe they know something that we don't know. And, but here's something you've got to deal with. Twice the text said down. So which way is the priest and Levite going? We know which way the man on the bloody way was going. He was going down. Away from Jerusalem. Oh, what a city. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Hark how the angels sing. Hosanna. There's no city like Jerusalem, the city of stone. But they're not going to it. As they go up in the tour bus and hear that on the tour bus, PA system, they're going down. Here's the thing. They might have argued, if we touch what looks like a dead body, we'll be unclean to go to temple. They'd already been to temple. And it didn't change them. Is it possible to go to church and come away unchanged? Do you have to help people when religious leaders have? have how about this? Do you have to help people who are really your enemies? I told you. Everybody knew how this story was supposed to go. Priest passes by. Levite passes by. Israelite stops and helps. No, nope, not an Israelite. Samaritan. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars about this. I said, most of us kind of default to saying, where did the Samaritans come from? Oh, yeah. When Assyria invaded the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C., uh, they intermarried and they pulled some of the people out and the mixed race was called Samaritans. Well, that's the typical view. Dr. Walt Zorn, a great Old Testament scholar, says, eh, maybe not. Maybe they started differently. It doesn't matter. They still were the enemies. You don't picture your enemies as the one helping, do you? See, in the parables of Jesus, you don't know who's wearing the white hats and who's wearing the dark hats. You don't know. Um, so years ago, I don't know if there, you, you would be too young probably to remember this. We had a group at our Bible college campus for 30 years, 1967 to 1997, called the Impact Brass and Singers. And they went out, and it was kind of our signature group, and they did programs and stuff. I'd be surprised if they weren't 100 years ago at Sunnybrook. Anyway, so, so they went out, and one of the boys in that group was in my preaching class. And he had been out to, to Indiana, and they'd presented Friday night concert, Saturday night concert, Sunday morning concert, Sunday evening concert. Well, Friday night, after the concert, they brought the kids from the Impact Brass and Singers, this music group, up front. And they had host families. You all with me? Host families. And these are going to be taking the kids two by two to their homes and keeping them for the night, such like. So they brought these two boys. You boys go with these guys. And so the two boys, this is one of the boys in my class, and he went to the house. He said, it wasn't all that nice of a house, but it was fine. We were glad to have a place. We had a late night meal because the concert had gone long. And so the student, in trying to engage the man of the house, he said, um, have you lived here long? And they talked about that. He said, well, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I just got a new job. And the man was very excited to tell about the new job. He said, oh, that's great. What did you do before that? He said, nothing. I was without work for three years. And the student said, oh, man, I hope, I hope we're not a burden to you tonight. Oh, no. He said, we told the church we wanted to host... Some, we're glad you're here. He says, well, um, what did you do during those three years? How'd you get by? And he said, well, 
He said, it was kind of rough. He said, um, I just did a few odd jobs here and there. Wife had a little part-time job. We did the best we could. But there came a point where they had to shut our power off because we couldn't pay the bill. The gas company hadn't shut our gas off yet, so the gas stove in the kitchen still worked. And one night, our dinner was a can, one can of green beans that my wife opened up and heated on the gas stove and served the meal for our family that night. That was it. And then the student said, well, I suppose the church helped you. And the man without any bitterness in his voice, because he didn't leave the church. Don't ever leave the church. It's your alma mater. It's your other mother. Don't leave the church. Without any bitterness, his voice says, well, no. He said, we did ask when they shut our power off. But the student said, well, how'd you get by? He said, our neighbors helped us. He said, you'd hate our neighbors. He said, they're just terrible people. They're always running up and down the road, ripping the rubber off their tires. We're afraid to go hit one of the kids. We don't even let our kids play with their kids because their kids cuss. And he said, they're always having beer drinking parties over there, just a lot of revelry, just it's, it's very unbecoming. But he said, the night that they shut our power off, we sat down to eat those green beans and there was a knock at the door. He said, went to the door, opened up, there was my beer drinking neighbor. And he was holding an electrical cord. And it stretched across my yard into his, to an outlet on his house. And he said, I said to him, what are you doing here? He said, well, you can't live without electricity. Here, come in to plug your fridge. And he shoved the electrical cord in his face. Sometimes your beer drinking neighbor might be a better friend than the church. When I was serving as academic dean at the college, I got a call one night. Still, in those days, it was kind of a thing. So I still had my tie on, came through the door. My wife said, Vonda called. Vonda was from Sepulpa. You know where that is. And she taught our deaf communications courses. And she and her husband were broken down out near Baxter Spring Exit, right before you get on the Will Rogers Turnpike. And they were coming back to Sepulpa. And she called, Brother Scott, our car broke down. I don't know who else to call. I am not a mechanic. I think that's why God gave you cell phones and debit cards. So anyway, I, I, I don't, you know, I kick the tires and wonder why the radio doesn't work. Anyway, I just, I'm not very good at this. So I said, well, Vonda, I just got home. I, she said, well, I didn't know who else to call. I said, all right, let me get my tools. So I grabbed my hammer and screwdriver. <laughs> and um, I got in the car, went out to that exit. I got there and uh, Rodney and Vonda had the car hood open. And uh, I could see kind of, so I parked my car and kind of walked around, still dressed from work. And there was a guy, I saw a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I thought, oh boy. Walk around and there's this Harley guy decked out in leather working on the car. And I said, hey. He said, hey. I said, this gal works at our school. She called me about the trouble. Can I help? I'm not kidding. He looked at me and said, I don't think so. Okay. So he motioned to Rodney. He kind of banged a little bit on, a, on an old line fil filter in the fuel line. And it cranked, 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 but it wouldn't go. So I said, just a minute. He reached down to his boot and he took out one of his tools. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay, that's a nice blade you got there. Anyway, he was going to use it as a screwdriver. So he cut the fuel 
filter in the line off. He went over to his bike and used his knife to be a screwdriver to undo something from his bike. He brought it over, uh, to put two clamps, connected the two to bypass the fuel filter that was clogged, motioned to Rodney, who's deaf, and Rodney starts the car and it purrs like a kitten. I said, Vonda, you just get in the car. Go, you guys go on to some pulp. It's late. I'll take care of our friend. So they took off. I looked around. I, I didn't see him. I thought, visiting angel? And then I looked over there. His bike was disabled now. And then I looked over. He was over on the grass, kind of leaned back, smoking something. And so I just, I went over to him and said, hey, uh, listen, thanks for helping. Um, you disabled your bike to help. Can I take you to town? We'll go get a part for your bike. No, I said, that's all right, man. There'll be a brother along soon enough. I'll, I'll get something from him. I said, well, let me take, just to show how stupid I am, I'm feeling sorry for this guy. So I said, well, um, let me take you, uh, can I buy you a meal? Man, just go back to your wife and kids, okay? Okay, thanks. Halfway back home, I thought, I just met the Good Samaritan. I just didn't know they came in leather. <laughs> so, so you have to help when they're, they're enemies? Do you have to help when they're disgusting? You ever, you ever come upon somebody that's been in a real fight? I mean a real fight? I'm not talking about Friday Night Smackdown. I'm, I'm talking about real fight. How do you think this guy looked? Bloodied, cut, bruised, almost left, left for dead, says the text. Do we have to help people who, who are disgusting? When Ernest comes in my office, I feel like I have to fumigate the thing. When I take him in my car back to the pilot station on I-44, I feel like I have to, man, Ernest... Disgusting? Pouring on oil and wine, binding his up wounds, putting them on your own donkey, getting all of his stuff on your donkey, maybe? I remember calling on a young man in the hospital. I've made a lot of hospital calls in my day, and I've seen tubes sticking out everywhere. You could have a tube in people I called on, okay? But I mean, I called on one guy one time, and I could hardly look at him. He had hit a stump with a snowmobile at 45 miles an hour. And he lay naked on a sheepskin to keep from bed sores. As I watched male and female nurses attend tenderly to his care, and I could hardly look at him. It was so disgusting. Mouth drawn to one side. I thought, I'm glad these nurses can love him because I'm having trouble. And then I noticed that if you help people, it might cost you time and money. It might cost you time and money. Um, when was the last time you took out two days' wages and just spontaneously gave it away to somebody who needed it? Now listen, you've got to have the wisdom of Solomon to know the difference between true need and a con artist. Do you not? Sometimes helping that guy with the cardboard box at Walmart is not the best way to help them. So just be wise. But on the other hand, what about that? What, do you think that in his phone... The Good Samaritan had down for the day, help bloody people today. I seriously doubt it. Have you noticed how many interruptions in life when you're being missional for Jesus come to you as opportunities for ministry? That's where these guys, time and money. Now, I need to brought this to a close because you need to discuss some things. Do you, um, did you notice the turn in the story? 
When you start, your neighbor is somebody in need, right? By the time you're done, Jesus has turned it totally around and says, which of the three proved to be the neighbor? Oh, oh, so my neighbor is somebody in need, but I'm supposed to be the neighbor. He turns that around. And what it really means is, folks, we got to kind of widen our circles a little bit more. That's how you're missional for Jesus. You help them, not because maybe they'll come to church. Maybe they'll go to our retreat. You do it because it needs done. One of my favorite preachers and good friend is Jeff Walling in the Acapella Churches of Christ. And Jeff has this story where he, he talks about, you know, God giving Jeff a piece of chalk and, you know, we're so interested in drawing the lines like, well, he's in, well, she's not. You know, he's in, but I don't know about him. Uh, he, and so we draw these lines. Who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom? And Jeff pictures it like God saying, Jeff, draw your circle bigger. Okay. So he erases, the, draws it a little bigger. God says, Jeff, draw it a little bigger. Okay, God. So he, and then he draws it bigger still. Is that better, God? And then God says, just one more thing. Give me the chalk. And Jeff says, I like my chalk. I don't want to give God my chalk. (laughs) Have you given God your chalk? Final thing. One of my professors in graduate school, Illinois, was a guy named Bruce Parmenter. Dr. Parmenter taught psychology and counseling. He was a good preacher too. One day in chapel, he was preaching on this passage of scripture, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. And um, he told the story of the Good Samaritan, just like we've walked through. And when he got done, he said to the student body, do you know that's not the end of the story? When Jesus says, go and do thou likewise, that's not the end of the story? We actually have found an ancient manuscript that told more of it. And you're going, gee, I didn't know this. And then, of course, you realize he's lying through his teeth. There's no ancient manuscript. They didn't discover this down at Qumran by the Dead Sea. This is the story, just like Jesus told it. He extended the parable to try to get it to some application. And this is what he said. We actually found this ancient manuscript. And what it tells us is that the guy who fell among thieves actually did get better. He recovered in time. And you know the first place he went? Samaria. And he knocked on every church door he could find. Does a good Samaritan go to church here? No, he didn't go here. Go down to the next church. Good Samaritan go to church here? No, he doesn't go here. Next church. Good Samaritan go to church here? No. Good church? Oh, good Samaritan? You're looking for good? Yes, he goes here. He's gone here for years. Can I talk to him? Says the man who fell among thieves. Well, yeah, he's in the kitchen. We had a potluck dinner today. He's back there doing dishes. He always does this. So he goes back and says, Hello. And the good Samaritan washing dishes, he looks up, says, hi. And the man who fell among thieves said, do you remember me? And he looks back and says, oh my word. I'm sorry. You look good. You didn't look so good the last time I saw you. 
but you look good. And the man who fell among thieves said, thanks to you. He said, I have one question for you, good Samaritan. Is this where you go to church? Yeah, he said, my family's been a member of this church for a long time. This is where we go. And the man who fell among thieves says, I'm going to join this church. You're going to join our church? Why in the world would you want to join our church? And the man who fell among thieves said, because I want to go any church that has people in it like you. 